The country of Indonesia. Do they like me in Indonesia? 100% confident Indonesia will prevail. Hello and welcome to Talking Indonesia. This is Tito Ambio from Aramati University, which stands on the unceded lands of the Wurundjeri Wurung people. Reformasi is a word that some might identify with what happened in 1998 in Indonesia. But of course, 1998 was just the beginning. Reformasi in Indonesia is a continuous process, especially when some of the democratic practices and institutions that exist in Indonesia right now are still quite young and are still quite fragile and under constant strain from pressures from multiple angles. Talking Indonesia's guest this week is someone who has been watching Indonesia quite closely from the time he was in second grade when he heard about this beautiful place with <laughs> um, white mansions from a school friend to the time he drove around avoiding tanks in his Kijang during the May 98 riot to starting a newsletter called Reformasi Weekly uh, from 2003 until now. And now he is also co-host with the journalist Jeff Hutton, for the podcast Reformasi Dispatch. And podcasting is becoming an important medium in Indonesia, and we'd like to think that both Talking Indonesia and Reformasi Dispatch are pioneers in podcasting about Indonesia, and I hope you agree with us. And in February this year, Jeff and Kevin kindly invited me to be the guest for Reformasi Dispatch. And now it's our turn to invite one of them, Kevin, to talk to Talking Indonesia listeners. And in this chat, we spoke about many, many things, the fragility of Indonesian democracy, Indonesia as a country of two systems, politics, football, and what's happening with the super coalitions that Indonesian political parties are forming right now, and what Anis Baswedan might have to do with all these coalitions. I had a lot of fun talking to Kevin, and uh, if you haven't been listening to Reformasi Dispatch, I think you should. I listen to it quite regularly, and it's a, it's a fun, informative podcast. Um, but for now, let's listen to my interview with Kevin O'Rourke. Here's Kevin. Uh, my name is Kevin O'Rourke. I produce the Reformasi Weekly Service, analyzing Indonesian politics and policy making for international organizations operating in Indonesia. Uh, I wrote a book uh, called Reformasi quite a while ago. Um, but, uh, I'm very glad to be with you here today. I appreciate the invitation. Thank you, Kevin. Um, I want to circle back later to what started you on your journey to try to understanding Indonesia. But what was the, the first um, impetus for you to 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 start studying about Indonesia? Actually, um, it was a boy uh, in my neighborhood uh, when I was in elementary school whose parents had worked in Jakarta with the World Bank and uh, he told me that he lived he told me that he had lived in a place where all the houses were white and I just thought it was magical <laughs> uh, that was uh, when I was probably in second grade I think and uh, yeah. he, uh, uh, he he pulled out the map and showed me where it was and it was uh, pretty flabbergasting that any place could be so far away and so huge at the same time. So I, I had become interested in, in Indonesia at an early age and was able to uh, maintain that interest. I wrote a book called uh, Jakarta that I found in my local library uh, in the 1980s and that was a fascinating read uh, about the history of the city. Uh, and then I was able to travel to Indonesia when I was 19 and that, that, that's what really sold me just because the people were uh, so much fun. 
Did you find the the white palaces in Jakarta? They <laughs> yeah, all all the all the buildings were white. It was true. <laughs> like I didn't lie. And all the cars are black, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, so yeah, that what what year was that? If you don't mind me asking. Uh, 1990. 1990, okay. And then um, about 13 years later, you started this Reformasi Weekly and you've been writing it since since then for, so yeah, for 20 years. That's that's a long time. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I uh, write a, um, about a 15-page you know, report in English analyzing current events uh, for subscribers every week, um, week in, week out, uh, two weeks off a year. So I've written well over 700 issues by now. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well, for me it's kind of interesting because that's also the the time I left Indonesia and kind of you know um, yeah moved to Australia and that's also the time when I started to be interested in other things outside of Indonesia which and, and then I obviously you know then became a journalist and I uh, then became really interested in Indonesia again from from a distance but at the same time oh. you were doing the other you know it's the other way around for yeah. you, right <laughs> you went to Jakarta <laughs> inverted careers yeah. it's inverted <laughs> careers um, but something that I when, when I left Indonesia I, I, when I was reading your Reformasi Weekly for the last two um, weeks um, it's kind of nice to know that Indonesians are still very passionate about the things uh, that Indonesians were passionate about when I left, which are football, uh, talking about corruption, and um, and that things are still not running on time. Um, so let's talk about that last one first, mm. talking about things not running on time. There is a possibility. Um, there is a real possibility uh, that the election might be postponed, um, which is... A big thing right because this is going to be i think it's one of the biggest elections um that will really define the future of indonesia can you tell us a little bit more about that yeah exactly yeah there, there's a lot of uh, reasons for you know worry right now unfortunately there's about uh three or four or even five different ways in which things could derail uh one of them is this effort to postpone the election using legal proceedings and ultimately it really should fail because postponement requires amendment of the constitution and political support for that is lacking right now mm. but the concern is merely that the the effort to uh, pursue postponement is going to be so disruptive that uh, it could just create a lot of confusion and uh, you know, seriously affect the quality of the election process and the legitimacy of it. So basically there's a party that's very obscure, Partai Prima. Um, yeah, as I mentioned, I've been covering politics for so long, week in, week out. I've never heard of this party. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was one of uh, uh, well over 40 parties that uh, tried to qualify for the election by proving its uh, eligibility in terms of having uh, personnel and offices around the country and failed last year. So then it disputed that through the normal processes in about three different phases, uh, each time uh, failing. Although the last decision that it received from the state administrative court, the PTUN, left the door ajar for criminal proceedings. And that's what the party pursued. And that was the big innovation on its part. Hmm. And then it elicited an outrageous verdict from the Central Jakarta District Court, so the third tier of the judiciary. Uh, saying that the General Election Commission, the KPU, has to redo all of its election preparations from the outset, and the judges noted that would require 
uh, moving the election date back to July 2025, which is a postponement of well over a year. So, hmm. um, yeah, the fact that just the mere fact that this party was able to elicit that decision is the worry factor. Yeah. And who are perceived to be benefiting from this possible postponement? Well, it's the uh, interest um, within the uh, status quo, uh, within the establishment and the Widodo administration. Uh, Widodo's arguably most powerful minister is uh, Luhut Panjaitan, and a year ago he openly advocated keeping Widodo in power, asking why should it be that Widodo has to leave office, um, even though the constitution requires it. Um, and. Um, there's also been efforts by others within the Widodo administration, particularly the president's chief of staff, Moldoko, the former military chief, who has made well over a dozen attempts to proclaim himself chair of the major opposition party mm. based on spurious grounds. Now, Luhut Panjaitan is an interesting character. He seems to be in the middle of everything these days. Yeah, absolutely. He's a... Uh... He pushes very hard, and uh, if he's uh, pushing in a direction which is constructive, then uh, the, the outcome can be constructive. Uh, so <laughs> he uh, has been associated with uh, numerous uh, significant accomplishments, and he presided over the handling of the COVID epidemic at a time when uh, conditions materially improved for Indonesia. So. Uh, he also championed the omnibus law, uh, which is uh, gigantic in scope and inherently controversial, but it did make beneficial reforms to the regulatory framework for labor-intensive industries. And since then, these labor-intensive industries have been booming, creating jobs for literally millions of people, which is precisely what Indonesia needs. So, um, yeah, that's the plus side. <laughs> <laughs> And what about some of the negative side? Is it... Okay, well, the negative <laughs> side, there's, uh, let's see, uh, I'm going to start with the environmental. Uh, Luhud is the person associated most closely with the promotion of the exporting of refined nickel, um, mixed hydroxide precipitate, MHP. That's the crude oil of the future. It's the material you need in order to make an electric vehicle battery. And uh, it's great that Indonesia is producing MHP, but um, it's doing so through uh, a, a poor technology called HPAL, which creates toxic waste on a vast scale. And there's virtually no uh, discussion of remediation efforts uh, uh, so far. And uh, so that's something that uh, is going to be a legacy of Luhut's policymaking. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then there's the election uh, postponement issue, like I mentioned a year ago, his stance on that. And um, uh, so the, the degradation of uh, democratic norms is something that has been noticeable, uh, in particular over the past couple of years. And uh, Luhut's been integral in that, I think. Hmm. And I think, um, you know, Luhut and uh, all these other things that we've been talking about, it's, um, it's kind of a, some of the signs that some analysts have been saying that there's there's democratic regressions and weakening of the political infrastructure in Indonesia. You know, Joko Widodo is obviously very focused on infrastructure, very focused on um, the economy, but there are things that are worrying many of us who are watching Indonesia um, in terms of its, you know, democratic regressions. For example, you know, you wrote in the Reformasi Weekly the failure of the constitutional court itself to not oust a judge, Guntur Hamza, who brazenly violated one of the most basic ethical standards of the court. Uh, how do you read these 
visible weakening of the spirit of reformation um, that you know you've been watching since uh, since the 2000s. Well, it's incredible, you know, and uh, the the real strength of Indonesian democracy has ultimately been the electorate, where democratic norms are common sense and commonplace. So, ultimately, um, that's what should enable Indonesian democracy to prevail, I think. But in the meantime, Indonesia's democratic institutions are still fledgling, even though they're 20 years old or more. They're still fragile. and. Um, as we've seen on January 6th in Washington, even centuries-old institutions can be fragile. So uh, they're in Indonesia, these institutions are really under strain and stress right now. And the issue is whether they can withstand this onslaught of pressure that's uh, affecting them from multiple angles at once uh, or not. What do you think will be the roles of the next generation of politicians and how do you see them operating in this current landscape at the moment? Uh, yeah, I think the, the most important uh, dynamic or mechanism in Indonesia's democratization over the past uh, 18 years now has been the direct election of regional heads which started in 2005. Uh, before that, they were elected by uh, regional assemblies since 1999, and before that, mm. they were appointed by Suharto. So leaders that come up through the ranks that way uh, have much better prospects for garnering public attention and uh, uh, persuading the electorate uh, of their credibility, basically. And that's what's happened with Joko Widodo. That was his uh, route to national politics and now looking ahead at the election if there's as many as say uh, eight candidates for high office president and vice president it's distinctly conceivable that half of those could be from the ranks of provincial governors so the the leaders that are going up through those uh, routes are better off and that's what Widodo's offspring are all doing right now mm. interestingly or seeking to do anyway uh, but Yudiono's um, uh, sons did not. They they were not interested in serving as a district chief. Uh, they wanted to go straight into the national level of politics, and and they've uh, I think suffered uh, politically uh, because of that. Uh, and uh, Puan Maharani has also received appointments and benefits and promotions uh, through the party rather than becoming a regional head, and so her popularity also remains very low. Mm. And what about, so at the moment, the main question is whether Megawati will accept Ganjar Pranowo as um, the PDIP uh, presidential uh, candidate. Um, what's, what do you think is happening there right now? Uh, I think that Megawati is very gradually coming around, um, uh, but uh, it, it's uh, adversely affecting Ganjar's prospects because he really needs to start campaigning right away. The latest poll that just came out from last week uh, from uh, LSI, Lembaga Survey Indonesia, it was a telephone poll, so it's not necessarily the most accurate and it can be a little bit misleading, but it indicates that Prabowo has uh, surpassed Ganjar now for first place. And uh, an in-person poll done the previous week had shown that Prabowo had pulled level with Ganjar in a head-to-head -head scenario. So basically, uh, especially with the controversy that uh, Ganjar encountered regarding 
the uh, U20 FIFA tournament in Israel, there's been a, a weakening on his part in the polls and a strengthening by Proboa, who's been able to associate proximity with Widodo. Uh, so this waiting game, whereby Ganjar still has no nomination at this late stage of the process, is hurting him because uh, he's a figure that really needs to get more national attention in order to uh, capitalize on his upside potential. And that's not happening because Megawati is very wary of him. So it's an extraordinary situation here where there's this momentous open election in Indonesia uh, that's uh, uh, only 11, yeah, barely 10 months away. Mm. And uh, still uh, there's, uh, it seems like nobody wants to win because there's still no <laughs> declared presidential candidate. And it is interesting because Ganjar Pranowo also, you know, the, the rumors uh, on, and also your analysis in Reformasi Weekly, um, uh, Ganjar basically said the thing about the FIFA, um, the Israel team uh, involvement in the FIFA World Cup, U20 World Cup. He did it in a way to impress Megawati, right? I think so. There's a person in the party who came out and, and said that uh, sort of a... a Somebody from within the party leadership uh, asserted that Ganjar took that stance because he had no choice. It was the, the line of the party and everybody in the party had to take that line. Uh, it was an extraordinary sort of uh, sequence of events there. Um, it was a senior figure from the most hardline Islamic party, uh, Hidayat Nurwahid, former head of uh, PKS, who quite brilliantly came out uh, and uh, reminded everybody that Sukarno had boycotted Israel in the 1958 games and also in 1962, I think. Um, and Nur is a, uh, a bitter critic of Israel, so uh, him invoking Sukarno, somebody from the opposite end of the ideological spectrum from him, basically, uh, was uh, uh, a clever move because that prompted Megawati to uh, seemingly follow suit and she herself uh, or anyway the parties uh, chose to take this stance as well lest they be less Sukarnoist than Hidayat Nirwahid <laughs> god forbid so uh, and then yeah so the, the governor of Bali came out and then the chapter head for East Java came out on the same day declaring opposition to Israel and then a day later uh, Ganjar as governor of Central Java a province that was going to have uh, tournaments played in Solo uh, came out also and said the same thing, even though it's a stance that's really not in keeping with his persona and his record. Mm. Do you think that was a big deal? Um, the FIFA um, revoking the, the the states as a host for for Indonesia was that? Yeah, was that a big deal? Yes, it was. And the reason I say that so confidently is because there's uh, reasonably good poll data about that from this new LSI poll. Uh, again, just a telephone poll, but nonetheless. Um, it shows overwhelming uh, opposition to Ganjar's stance. In other words, uh, overwhelming willingness to allow Israel to play in order for Indonesia to host the tournament. And uh, fewer than 30% of respondents were uh, uh, agreeing that Indonesia should reject Israel. Um, so whereas uh, nearly 70% wanted, uh, you know, favored the tournament to go ahead. Let's yeah. Let's talk about this upcoming election. Um, so at the moment, Ganjar Pranowo and Prabowo are the two names that people are talking about, especially about with the polls showing them become more and more powerful. What's um, what about Anis Baswedan? Where is it, where does he stand right now? 
Yeah, uh, he's uh, supposedly the sectarian candidate supported by the hardline Islamic groups, and yet he remains silent on the whole issue of Israel and FIFA. <laughs> so uh, that was clever on his part, I guess. Um, he's right up there as well. It's basically uh, practically a three-way tie in a, in a three-way scenario um, at the moment, I think. Uh, maybe uh, Ganjar still has a slight advantage. Uh, the main advantage or, or a distinction between the three that may matter is the level of name recognition nationwide because Prabowo's is uh, near universal, having run for president twice already. And uh, Basuedans is also high, having been a, a Jakarta governor. Uh, but uh, Ganjar is still just barely over 80% name recognition. So one out of five Indonesians almost uh, don't even know who he is. And so those are potential supporters for him if he can start campaigning soon. What about vice presidency spots? That seems to be heating up as well. Yeah, that's really going to depend on which parties end up backing which presidential candidate, which ultimately depends on Megawati, who's being very reticent. And so there's uh, this prolonged impasse here. But it's uh, evident that Ridwan Kamil, the governor of West Java, the largest province, would boost any ticket that he joins by roughly two percentage points, which is a big boost for a running mate. Um, uh, Eric Tohir, the state enterprise minister who's a coal tycoon, um, has ardent support from the National Mandate Party, PAN, which is a rather pivotal party, so he has good prospects for getting a nomination, plus he brings uh, campaign financing ability, which parties like. Um, and But there's a, a, a competition to uh, uh, try to recruit Kofifa Indar Parawansa, the governor mm. of East Java, um, who is uh, practically, apart from Juan Maharani, the, the only female potential contender for high office. And she also has strong ties to the largest Islamic organization, the moderate Nadlatul Ulama, as uh, head of the NU Women's Wing, uh, and governor of the second largest province. Uh, so she's a formidable figure and uh, a likely contender for a vice presidential role. Um, but there's there's other names as well. Sandy Uno, who ran last time with Prabowo, uh, could be a VP candidate again for somebody. Uh, the chair of uh, PKB, uh, Iskandar, uh, Muhammad Iskandar, is very much wants a VP nomination, and the chair of Golkar is in the same boat, uh, Erlanga Hartarto. And a lot of these decisions will be made by coalitions of parties. So, so let's talk a little bit about that, because we have seen a few coalitions. We have the KIB, KIR, and then um, uh, what's the other one? The Nasdem one, um, Perubahan, mm. Koalisi Perubahan. Yeah, Perubahan, change. Uh, <laughs> yeah, change. Um, what do you think is behind this coalitions at the moment because there, there seems there seems to be a lot of movements and I'm kind of you know scared to ask you this question because uh, this uh, will go to air in about three days and things might happen in yes, three right. days they'll change by the all the coalitions right. will change what's what's <laughs> happening here <laughs> well I'll just uh, we'll just record three different answers and then yeah. you can just take whichever one is most relevant at the time Excellent. yes um, uh, yeah yeah uh, Fear uh, is the is the short answer uh, on the part of Widodo administration insiders who dread the prospect of a Baswedan presidency uh, because Baswedan himself and his allies have faced quite a lot of uh, pressure and uh, 
opposition from the government uh, for the past uh, six years now or more. So uh, they fear retribution. And so they're really striving to do anything uh, feasible to prevent the best way in presidency. And this is actually the biggest fear, I think, is the prospect for the Anti-Corruption Commission, the KPK, to name Basuedan a suspect, which uh, is, seems very close to happening. Mm. And that's the thing that could that derail the election most severely because uh, that would really uh, torpedo the legitimacy uh, of the process. Um, but these are the lengths to which um, some figures are going to try to uh, thwart Basuedan, and one of the major efforts is an attempt to form a grand alliance uh, combining Prabowo's uh, KIR with the Golkar-led KIB alliances into one super alliance that is just uh, so broad and so mighty that uh, Basuedan will have no chance. So this is a theory that's based on a flawed concept of uh, voters blindly obeying their parties to which they're uh, failingly loyal, which in fact is not the case at all. Voters make up their own minds. They're very independent-minded. Um, so it's, yeah. a, it's a poor theory to begin with. And in fact, in Indonesia, um, I think in the in the few elections where we, we see coalitions getting a lot of votes for parliament, and then when, when it comes to presidential, presidential elections, people didn't really vote through, uh, through party lines. That's right, yeah, over and over again that's happened, and yet there's still this assumption that if a party has 22% of the seats in parliament, therefore it will deliver to you 22% of the vote in the presidential election for whomever it wants to nominate. It's yeah. a, a really flawed uh, logic. Yeah, and, yeah you, you mentioned social media, and I think this is quite an important one, right, because we are seeing um, you know, people like Ridwan Kamil, people like Ganjar Pranowo, who know how to navigate social media and know how to promote themselves on social media, um, getting some success and recognition. Um, but also social media has the other side as well, right? There's a lot of uh, misinformation and disinformation as well. How do you see the social media playing a role in, in you know, in, in the coming months as well as during the election? Mixed, but you know, most people access uh, the internet through handphones, and uh, it's only about 70 or maybe at the most 80% of Indonesians who have handphones. So there's uh, this big swath of uh, the electorate that still is dependent on television news. Hmm. So the, it's not as quite uh, fast paced as some other democracies yet, it's still, some of the characteristics of uh, more traditional democracies. Hmm. So, so now I want to talk a little bit more about about you, Kevin, about your experience oh, yeah. uh, in analyzing Indonesia in the last 20 years plus. Um, and also one of the reasons why we're having this uh, chat is because we're, we're helping each other. We, we're both podcasters um, and your podcast, Reformasi Dispatch. Um, is one that I admire, one, one that I listen to quite regularly. Um, why, why did you make the move to podcasting? Um, well, um, uh, it was actually uh, amid the pandemic. Uh, it was just a useful way to work uh, since mm. it doesn't require uh, physical presence. Uh, and uh, I was fortunate to have help from Jeff Hutton, the co-host of um, um, the, the podcast. And 
he was uh, available and willing to devote quite a lot of effort to it and so um, it uh, just took off basically uh, he, he was the leader uh, so mm. I followed along what was your experience with that was is that is was that a new medium for you yeah it was very much so so um, yeah it took a lot of uh, fits and starts and uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, still in the fit stage arguably uh, but um, um, yeah, it, it, I mean, I think one of the nice things about podcasting is that you can just be yourself, and it, to the extent that you can be yourself, then you, it's easier and better, right? So um, that's that's what I try to uh, do, I guess. Mm, have, have you got more engagements and connections with Indonesians through your podcasting? Well. Um, through the interviews that we do, that's been really terrific uh, for me because uh, it's really remarkable. When you ask somebody to be a guest on a podcast, they almost always say yes. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I still don't know why that is. Uh, so it's uh, it's quite oh, we, it's we, we'll have easy. To talk to, Indonesians, you know? So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Yeah. Uh, so that's been really terrific. Actually, I've been able to reach out and uh, have great discussions with people that otherwise I probably wouldn't have been able to you know, tap into. So. Uh, that's been the best part for me, I think. Um, uh, it uh, yeah, it's a way to, to lift your head up over the parapet and um, uh, get some profile, and and that's important from a business standpoint too. So, uh, yeah, it's been useful. Mm. Because I, that, that, I think that's one thing that I admire about what you do, uh, Kevin. Because you know, it's it's sometimes it's very easy, right, for people who have a bit of understanding about Indonesia to, to then, you know, write about Indonesia from afar or not very, you know, not getting very involved with the people. But it seems like you you want to keep, you know, knowing what's happening on the grounds. And, you know, and I think that's that's quite admirable. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah my wife is uh, Indonesian, so, you know, uh, the, the vast majority of my relatives are Indonesian. <laughs> She's <laughs> so got a huge family, yeah. yeah uh, so, um, yeah, that definitely helps. What What has been your highlights um, in, you know, covering Indonesia in the last um, 20, 30 years? Can you share some experience uh, with us? Uh, well, um, the lowlights really definitely stick out. Um, mm -hmm. uh, so that was the uh, riots of uh, May 98. I remember that like it was yesterday, um, driving around that day um, and uh, avoiding gangs trying to burn my Kijang. Mm. Uh, but um, the election that happened the following year was a huge highlight. That was just an incredibly dramatic, uh, positive event, the uh, parliamentary 1999 election. Can um, you tell us a little bit more about, about May 98? Well, so you were in Indonesia, mm. obviously. Yeah. and. Um, a good friend of mine was stuck in his office building. There were riots all around the outside of the building. So meanwhile, uh, his fiance was uh, at home and she was Singaporean and he was concerned. So he asked me to check on her. So I drove out and she was fine. Uh, but then on the way driving home, I had to weave around some tanks. And then I turned on to uh, my street, Captain Tendean, and there was a, you know, a Kijang, just like mine, tipped over and burning with oh, okay. guys around it. <laughs> Right. So I just uh, put it in reverse and uh, made it go as fast as I could and, um, and then went and, and uh, walked home to dump the car somewhere and then uh, walked home. But 
It was a it was a really pretty frightening uh, few hours there because it was unpredictable what might happen, and it was not uh, anti-foreign sentiment actually, but um, yeah, it was just a, a dangerous, chaotic time. Mm. Yeah, you remained, and you remained um, inspired and inspiring to write about Indonesia after that day. Yeah, that's right. I mean, the main focus of my book was examining what happened in those May riots, and um, yeah, it became clear to me that they were deliberately provoked. There was arson that happened in more than 40 different uh, commercial centers by 10 a.m. that morning on the first day of the riots, so uh, it, that was deliberate, and so... It was really a horrific uh, event all the way around. You know, there has not been that sort of reconciliation, that sort of grappling with the truth of what actually happened, and no accountability whatsoever. To this day, we still can't figure out who was it that fired those shots uh, from the overpass in Saproto uh, or Abmadiani against uh, the students from Trisakti. Uh, there were four students shot in the neck and left to, to you know, bleed to death, and mm -hmm. no accountability about you know, who was responsible for bringing that about and so so therefore to this day we still see um, yeah, a lot of the same dynamics and uh, uh, habits taking place in politics. Why do you think that is? What do you think it's and you know we're not just talking about the May 98 right we, are, we can also you know bring in uh, 66 for example what, what is it that makes Indonesia so resistant to facing this huge traumatic um, episodes of its history? I'm not sure. Yeah, that's a tough question, Tito. Uh, I think um, you know, the, the deference to the military um, is, a, is an important one. There's a lot of respect for the military for a lot of good reasons, um, but uh, it's arguably um, you know, excessive deference. And there's been figures in the military, I think, who have been very reluctant to expose what happened uh, in 1998 and in other episodes. And that's created this gridlock. I think that. Uh, you know, President Widodo himself has uh, been particularly deferential to the interests of uh, uh, some uh, key figures in the army in particular, and so you know, that's sort of uh, perpetuated the problem over the past uh, eight years. And you know, prior to that, it was a, a president who um, was a moderate reformer from the military, but was nonetheless, nonetheless from the military, Yudiono. And so there's just been um, you know, a, a lack of political will. Mm. Do you think it's important for Indonesia to to try to face some of these things? Uh, yeah, definitely, because uh, they, they continue to happen. Uh, yeah, just just look at the uh, uh, you know, Kanjurahan Stadium disaster in October, mm. and uh, you know, there's a lack of accountability already for that. Um, also, just the uh, the Ferdi Sambo case last July, the execution of the sergeant uh, by the two-star police general. Mm. Uh, still no motive. The, the prosecutors... Uh, sentenced Sambo to death uh, without establishing a motive for why he perpetrated the execution. So, yeah, these are the flaws that uh, persist. Mm. What do you think needs to happen? Um, yeah, well, yeah, time can help, I guess, just especially if uh, some of the culprits of the most egregious abuses um, sort of uh, become historical figures rather than uh, real-life uh, power brokers. That would be one thing. But uh, it just takes political will, and um, uh, it takes a, a candidate with uh, some, some willingness to stand up for principle, um, and um, hopefully that's what the election will bring about. Uh, but uh, it just so happens that all nine parties in parliament are not reformist. Um, mm. uh, 
really. Yeah, so there, there's there's no political support from the legislature for this, and these parties control the presidential nomination process, so therefore it's uh, reflected in that so far. But uh, things could change uh, after the, the nomination deadline in November. Mm. But yeah, it's it's uh, it's kind of a good news for you, right? Because you write this news newsletter called Reformasi Weekly, and it seems like it's it's um, it's still happening. Reformasi is still happening. It, it wasn't a process that happened in '98, and then it just ended. It's still happening in Indonesia. Yeah, I always uh, tell uh, people from organizations or companies considering operating in Indonesia that it's uh, tricky because there's two different systems that operate simultaneously. There's, uh, the, the, uh, transparent, uh, democratically oriented professional system, which is very strong in Indonesia and very commonplace and, uh, uh, valid and legitimate. But at the same time, there's also what I call a, um, age old patronage fealty norms. And, uh, those tend to be uh, very important in affecting actors and organizations on a daily basis on the ground. And so it's a matter of negotiating one system versus the other, uh, one layer or another layer, uh, one day to the next. And so it uh, can be a minefield. Sometimes I think, you know, people who call themselves Indonesia expert, it's like, no, you're lying. No one knows what's happening in Indonesia. It is too complex. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> Well, thank you very much, Kevin. Is there anything else that you'd like to say? No, no, that's great, Tito. Thanks a lot. I really appreciate it. No, thank you. And that is Talking Indonesia for this week. And you can also listen to Reformasi Dispatch anywhere you get your podcasts from. My name is Tito Ambio from Aramati University. Thank you for listening and I'll see you next time. Sampai jumpa.